The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2015 Twin Cities Project. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. So yeah, I'm Paul Delahunt, and my wife Heather and daughter Kate are around as well. They'll be probably in and out, we'll see how Kate does. Kate's three, uh, three months old. Um, she's a cutie, so if you want to or something like that, I'm sure you did. Uh, I am from Twin Cities. I grew up kind of locally, went to school at the University of Minnesota, was involved in campus outreach um, while I was in school there, and graduated in December 2008. I work for Wells Fargo right downtown. The Wells Fargo Center is the tower downtown that lights up all yellow at night, and so that's the building I'm in. And I've been with Wells Fargo for a little over six years. Doing different things right now. I'm uh, an associate banker in the uh, U.S. corporate banking group. So there's it's large corporate names that we bank. That some of them are kind of household names like Target or Best Buy or General Mills. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. I started that. I can't remember if I already said this. I started that in January. So it's been a new gig for me. Learning new things all the time. And um, Jared had me come in and give a talk last year, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed interacting with the students that were here last year. Lots of fresh faces um, tonight. And it's always crazy to me, about like two years ago, it got to the point where students who were involved in campus outreach, I really didn't know any of them for my time being involved. And so it's just been cool to see how the ministry has continued to turn over, and I know that it's really blessed the ministry um, since I left, so maybe I should Maybe there's a reason for that, right? <laughs> but uh, no, it's, Campus Outreach is, has a huge, um, made a huge impact on my life, really transformed my life in a lot of ways. So I'm excited that you guys have been able to glean. I'm guessing that most of you have um, been a part of Campus Outreach in some way, shape, or form. So before we kind of get started, a couple questions for you guys. Who has already graduated? Show of hands. And then who's still in school? Okay, that's close to half and half. And then for those of you who have graduated, um, are you planning to stick around the Twin Cities or are you planning to move? So I guess, are you planning to stick around? A couple? And how many are moving? For sure. Okay, I'm going to pray and then we'll get going. Father God, thanks for bringing us here tonight. Thanks for your grace to us. Um, your mercies are new every morning and they've sustained us all the way to where we are now, and your grace will be sufficient for tomorrow. That's the kind of God that you are. We praise you, and thank you for being that. And we thank you for being that, not just in some vague sense, but concretely, really, in Jesus Christ for us. And he is our life, so we praise him, and thank you so much for him. Pray for help now tonight as we engage um, t- and maybe tired minds in thinking about life and about what it means to um, live lives of sacrificial mission for Jesus' sake. I pray that you help us to engage. I pray that you help me to um, give a clear talk that I'd be helpful, that I wouldn't get in the way, and that you would bless this time. I'm praying for Amen. Oh, I need two volunteers, one to read from Titus 2, and one to read from 1 Peter 2, and I forget about it. So, who's volunteering? Yeah, I'm 
Anybody? You want Titus? Titus and First Peter? Cool. Well, it'll be a little bit before you read, but uh, I'll let you know. Uh, so, I think that with the way that the um, agenda has been set for this time, this Twin Cities project, uh, you've covered a lot of different topics so far, and I know that two of them are gospel uh, maturity and gospel community. I'm not sure, has Jared shown you a diagram that involves all this stuff? Have you shown you that or no? You would remember it if you've seen it. No? Okay. So one of the ways that he talks about, um, I think very helpfully for our church and just for all of us as individuals, one of the ways that he talks about it is that gospel community exists to flesh out gospel maturity. So gospel community presses into our individual maturity as we grow in Christ, but it also presses out into gospel mission that it engages, gospel community engages the way that we um, interact with our coworkers, interact with fellow Christians, interact with non-Christians, um, that, that we uh, you know, come into contact with every day. And I, that's been very helpful for me. And so just kind of a way to sort of recap what you talked about the last couple of weeks. Um, and with respect to mission, I would guess that in a crowd like this, you guys are are in different places with respect to mission. Some of you um, probably were very have been very involved or were very involved in campus outreach when we were here at this um, event this summer. Um, and you're very involved in terms of being involved in other students' lives, you know, laying down your life the way in, in, in CO speak, being in dorms, whatever, right? Um, some of you maybe not quite as much. Maybe that was something that you always aspired to, but it didn't ever seem to click for you. Um, maybe you were involved in some other college ministry than campus outreach. Maybe um, you kind of lived a lot of your college career with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Maybe some of you don't ever really think about mission. You know what? That's okay. God has us all in different places. And so I just want to engage tonight about the topic of mission. One of the reasons why I want to address that is because um, when you graduate, your life changes pretty significantly. <laughs> And for those of you who've been very engaged in campus outreach, I've just seen a ton of students who really struggle with the transition. Um, they're used to a community, a tight-knit community, with a very clear goal and mission. And sometimes that mission provides a lot of meaning to your life. And when you graduate, it's just not quite the same. And that's okay. That's actually the way it's supposed to be. So um, I just want to kind of address that. I've seen a ton of people who've been involved in campus outreach significantly graduate, try to adapt to the world, to, not, not the world, but adapt to just living life in the real world, and they fall away from the faith. They reject Christ, or they reject some of the convictions that they used to have. It's a real thing. And so I think that one of the reasons why that happens is that there's a lack of engagement in real mission. You're just sort of caught up in the, you know, it's cool sort of thing. So just kind of something to, to chew on as we talk tonight. Another kind of thing I would say by way of introduction is our culture is changing a lot. Um, I'm not a person who would you know, say, hey, uh, America's going to hell in a handbasket kind of thing, or you know, wring my hands and be all worried about it. But it's just true. You know, the Supreme Court decision recently is a sign of how much things are changing. And it may not be very popular to be a Christian in five years, ten years. Um, you may not be persecuted outright, but it just may not be popular. 
And that's a real thing that you guys wouldn't have to face. It's a real thing I have to face. And it's, like I said, it's, it's real. So I would just encourage you to be real about this. It's not a, not a game. I, like I said, I've seen a lot of people walk away from, from Christ. So with that said, I'm going to pray. Oh, I already prayed. Um, we're going to do an activity. So, <laughs> um, you guys are not believe how poorly prepared I am for tonight, but that's okay. Um, here's what we're going to do. When, when you hear the phrase gospel mission, what do you think of? Well, I'm going to give a definition for gospel mission that I kind of want to operate with tonight, um, but I'm not going to give it right now. I'm going to take a step back and, and just think about story, because I think anytime you think about mission, there's a story involved. When you think about missions that you're aware of, just when you think of mission apart from even the gospel, you think of a story. Right? I mean, you can make a whole set of movies called Mission Accomplished, because in order to accomplish a mission, there's got to be a story. And so what's the story? What's the story that provides the context for our mission, that gives meaning to our mission? Well, it's God's story of the world, and um, I'm sure many of you have heard this before, but just a really easy sort of four-step um, easy way to understand um, God's mission in the world, God's story of the world, is this. <clears throat> creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That last one, people call it all sorts of different things. I like consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The creation, that's the story of how we got here. And everybody's got a story for that. Everybody believes we got here somehow. So that's a common point of overlap that we have with everyone. Everybody believes, um, actually everybody believes in all four of these things in some way, shape, or form. Creation, how we got here. Fall, what went wrong? Something's obviously wrong in this world. What is it? And um, with God, with the Bible, with <laughs> reality, we know that that's sin. Sin entered the world. Um, redemption, what puts things right. And consummation, which is where we're going. And I just kind of want to think about that for a little bit. God is involved in this story at each step. He's involved at, as the creator. He made us. He made the world. He made everything. And he called it good. He's the judge. So when man sinned, God stands over that. And he judges it. And he calls it evil. He's the redeemer. God specifically, um, well, he re has redeemed his people in many ways throughout time. Um, in the Old Covenant, the, the Exodus and Moses' leadership is probably the in the context of the Old Testament, the main way that God redeemed his people. The Old Testament comes back to it again and again and again. And then obviously in Christ, in the Incarnation, God actually becomes flesh in the person of his Son. And then he's the recreator, or the consummator. He's the one who's bringing everything to the you know, happy ending beyond belief. And so we were created to be God's agents in the world and to join in the joyful song of creation. God said uh, to Adam and well, he said to Adam and Eve, he said, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it." And it says that um, God gave Adam the garden to keep and to tend. This was our our mission. Before there was any sin, before there was any fall, our mission was fill the earth, subdue it, be my agents in the world. Um, but with the fall. Um, that all got ruined. Obviously, it ruined us, and it ruined our friends and our neighbors and our family and everyone in this room. 
but it also ruined the creation because God subjugated the creation to futility, it says in Romans 8. Because of our sin, everything else got cursed and it's broken down. And so the, the story of our sin, the story of the fall, is not only a story of my personal sin, but it's the story of the breakdown of everything. Um, and so with the fall, God judged um, not only human sinners, but also the entire creation. And we lost our ability to be the agents that God made us to be. Everything got stuck. Everything backfired. Everything was broken. And that's why the incarnation is really, in, in a sense, I mean, God could have delivered us in, I'm sure, many ways, but the only way that's really conceivable to us is the incarnation. God had to enter into his creation in order to restore from the inside out. Um, and so in Christ, God both judges human sin, but also provides for human redemption. He deals with, with sin by judging it in the person of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Um, so he judges sin in Christ, but he also provides for our redemption. So that in Christ, God is shown to be righteous, and he you know, restores us and welcomes us back into fellowship with him. Uh, I think a lot of times we kind of stop there, and we think that our relationship with God is sort of what's primary, or it probably is primary, what's sort of exclusively the point of the redemption that's in Christ. But it's actually much broader than that. Colossians 1.19 and 20 says that in Christ... Um, how does it go? That in Christ, God was reconciling all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth. So that's not just people. That's everything. And so we have to remember, when we start thinking about our lives and sort of the humdrum, everyday rhythms of life, that we're, our lives have a, have a... We're living out our lives in the context of the story of God and what he's doing in this world. And it's bigger than just you, bigger than just your own struggles and sins, bigger than just your own joy and growth and sanctification. And it's even bigger than that of your neighbor. It's, it's everything. Everything is caught up into this story, and we'll one day have to reckon with it, with God, for better or worse. Um, and so the, the uh, consummation is cosmic. It's not just individual. The cosmic scope means that we care about everything in the cosmos and especially human souls. However, creation is still under a curse. We haven't gotten to consummation yet, right? So we're still broken, despite the fact that God is healing us. There's, there's sin involved. Um, death remains in our world. And so we're, we await Christ's return. We await, we await the restoration of the new heavens and new earth. And that's the context that we find ourselves in. That's the story <laughs> of our lives. And um, one of the, as you transition from a context where the gospel and Bible study is sort of part of the rhythm of everyday life and you're being fed by talks on a regular basis out to kind of the boring reality sometimes that is the day in, day out, just rhythms of adult life. Um, we forget that we're caught up in that story. We forget the, the big grand meaning. So I just want to remind us of that. Now, different Christian traditions with with respect to this story, they've underappreciated different parts of the story. So I think about liberal Christianity, and I'm not talking about, you know, flaming liberal Christianity that sort of denies any miracles or denies um, the resurrection of Christ, but just sort of, you know, soft liberal Christianity. Um, 
often misses the scope of particularly the fall in the story. They'll, they'll deny that we're sort of basically sinful because of the fall. They'll deny the fact that the creation was cursed, and they'll think about it as essentially neutral, right? And therefore, if you, if you miss sort of the scope of the fall, then you miss the scope of redemption too. You deny the, the um, effectiveness of what Christ actually accomplished. Because if our sin isn't all that bad, then Christ is sort of a good example of somebody who suffered, and you should sort of follow him. But um, in liberal Christianity, you often miss the scope of the fall, and therefore you miss the scope of redemption. And that's kind of the, the, you know, the inner two of the, of the four aspects of the story that I talked about. But on the other side of the spectrum, often fundamentalist Christianity or really conservative Christianity can miss the cosmic scope of creation. Right? Creations, because of the fall, they, um, I kind of grew up this way. The world is sort of bad. It's sort of going down. God's going to sort of burn it up in the end. It used to be good, but now there's very little in it that's good anymore. And really the only thing that's good is maybe Christians or the church or something like that. And I don't think that's biblical for many reasons that are sort of beyond the scope of tonight. And so really conservative Christianity often can miss that, unfortunately. And if you miss that, then you kind of miss the scope of consummation. So heaven becomes a place where we're, you know, we have wings and we like angels and we sit on the clouds and wear diapers and play hearts and stuff like that. And I don't think that's really what consummation is about either. So our perspective on the story, whether we're um, kind of missing the mark or maybe more in line with the biblical reality, our perspective on the story shapes our understanding of mission. So I work for a bank. Does working for a bank really matter to God? That's a question I had to wrestle with for the first six months um, because I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. How do we respond to our neighbors when they invite us to the pride parade? What are we doing about poverty in our city? How do we share the gospel with another person? And so to help answer these questions, um, I want to go to point two. I just realized I forgot to kind of give you an outline. So what I was talking about, I kind of referred to as getting our bearings. Let's get, we have to get our bearings in order to understand mission. And so um, where are we in the, in the scope of the story? Where should our compass be pointing? That's getting our bearings. And so my second point is um, getting our marching orders. I just want to talk specifically about mission. So I wrote the definition that I'm going to work with tonight on the board. You guys are working on your stuff. And you can write this down and I'll talk about it later if you want to. But the way I want to talk about gospel mission is that it's God's call for his people, which would be us, to faithfully follow, embody, and proclaim Christ through loving and sacrificial presence in our world. Gospel mission is God's call for his people to faithfully follow, embody, and proclaim Christ through loving and sacrificial presence in our world. And so in a phrase, the way I'm going to talk about it is that gospel mission is reflected by faithful presence in our world. And both of those things are important. It's important to be faithful to Christ, not sell out. It's important to be present, not hide or um, create a Christian ghetto or something like that. And three maybe alternative reactions or three alternative attitudes to what I'm going to call faithful presence um, have been outlined in a book called To Change the World by a guy named James Davison Hunter that's really had a big impact on me. It's kind of a ac more academic book. If you like that kind of thing, you like the book. If you don't, you won't. 
That's fine. I'll summarize it for you. There's three sort of <laughs> malfunctioned responses to the world that he outlines, especially in America, the church in America. One he calls defensive against, and I would call this um, a fighting response to the world, or a fighting, a fighting understanding of um, the culture or whatever. And the storyline basically goes, our society used to be Christian, things used to be great, they used to be moral, they used to be good, and now everything's going downhill. And what happened? we got to resist that. And so you fight it out, often politically. right? So that's defensive against or a fighting response. There's another wing of Christianity, even within evangelicalism, that seeks relevance to the world. And not in a help, healthy, sort of gospel-contextualized way, but in a, a way that's assimilating. It's an assimilating response to the world. It sells out. It's not faithful to Christ. So we just become like the world. And then a third uh, response would be purity from. So this is, the world is dirty. The world is going to mess me up. If I get too, if I rub shoulders too close with my, with my pagan coworker, I'll probably fall into sin, so I shouldn't really hang out with them. And that's purity from or a retreating response. We retreat into our, our ghetto. But faithful presence is different. And maybe a, a biblical passage that really outlines sort of like a, uh, the way that, that faithful presence manifests itself is Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, um, God's people have been captured. They've been sent into captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah is still back in, in um, I suppose, Judah at the time. He's still back in Jerusalem. And there's these, most of the people have been carried off to Babylon and they're in exile. And there's a false prophet named Hananiah who is in Babylon. And he tells the people, hey, God is going to deliver you. God is going to cut short your time of captivity. He's going to, to bring you out. And it's going to happen very shortly. Well, he's a false prophet. And Jeremiah sends a letter from Jerusalem to these, um, these Jews who were in exile. And he says, it's actually not true. And I is a false prophet. And this is the actual word from the Lord. <clears throat> he says, I want you to actually go deeply into the culture, but remain deeply distinct. I want you to be faithfully present. Be present in the culture. He says, build houses and live in them. Have your sons and daughters get married. Seek the welfare of the city. But he never advises them to sell out. It's always within the context of being the covenant people of God. So there's, there's that balance. It's faithful, present. He doesn't say, Hey, fight against the Babylonians. They're evil, wicked people. They've done a lot of evil, wicked things. And you've got to, you know, get back to Jerusalem. That's the point. He doesn't say, well, just become just like the Babylonians. Worship their gods. Um, you know, intermarry among them. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't call them to assimilate. And he doesn't call them to retreat either. He doesn't say, hey, form your little, you know, area of the city over here. He says, no, live amongst the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And um, as an aside, that's actually the, that is the chapter where kind of the famous verse about God saying to his people, I have plans for you, plans to build you up and not destroy you, plans to give you a future and a hope. It's actually in that context. So God doesn't, doesn't just have, have some random plan for us that lines up with our happiness all the time, but he does have a plan for us that as we live faithfully present in our world, he, he blesses us. <clears throat> 
And so I have a paradigm, an exile, a paradigm for those of us who are in exile. Do we live in Babylon or do we live in Jerusalem? Right? Are we at home in Jerusalem where, we, where we're comfortable, where everybody believes the same thing as we do, where our beliefs are never called into question? Or do we live in Babylon? Are we amongst pagans? Are we amongst people who don't worship the one true God? I would submit that we're in Babylon, we're not in Jerusalem. And so that shapes our attitude. Faithful, faithful presence or gospel mission in our context, I would say, is less about doing specific activities. I mean, there, there are certain activities that we're going to do if we you know, perform gospel mission, and it's kind of what you guys all said. But it's less about doing specific activities, and it's more about what I would describe as an instinct or an attitude for how we do every activity. So <clears throat> it's a problem with gospel mission. We're not really performing gospel mission if we think that we go share the gospel with a, a coworker or something, but then how we think about the way that we live in our neighborhood isn't affected by that. Right? And we could go sort of on and on because gospel mission is more an attitude or an instinct about how we do everything in life. And that's what I want to call you guys to tonight. That's what I'm trying to, to follow. Um, as a follower of Christ, I just think it's what we're called to. I'm going to read, it, I think, a good example of what faithful presence looks like in practice to kind of flesh this out. And it, you know, I'll say this. I know it's kind of a vague. Some of this is kind of vague. The topic is so huge that how do you address it in 30 minutes? So we'll have a little time of Q&A at the end. And if you have questions about how to flesh it out, write them down, make a note, make a mental note, whatever. We can try to flesh it out a little bit more. But this is helpful. I'm going to read a kind of an extensive quote which is always dangerous, but I'm going to do it. This is the epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. It's from the second century. It's from a Christian to a non-Christian. And it's awesome. I would encourage you to, uh, to read it. It's fairly lengthy. But chapter 5 is called The Manners of the Christians. And he's describing what Christians are like to this pagan who's interested in Christianity. He says, For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. They neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and contestably striking method of life. <clears throat> they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, to beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and yet are persecuted by all. <clears throat> they are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are a lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. 
They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body, that are the Christians in the world. So that's a pretty cool quote. I like it. I like reading it every time I read it. Maybe one of my favorite is, they have a common table, but not a common bed. I just think it's poetic. That's an example of faithful presence in action. It's, it's a people who don't consider this land their homeland, and yet they can be at home anywhere. And it's part of being caught up in that story that we talked about. So, scripture. What are some questions for you guys? What are, what are some common passages that come to your mind when you think about, hey, what's, what's a Bible you know, verse or passage that talks about mission? I think there are some common passages that we go to. I mean, I always go to like the Great Commission, right? Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, and I think there's, we sort of have our go-to passages um, that, that we think about, but I think there's actually a lot more in the New Testament, specifically, because it's Christ has come, that we don't think of as mission. We think of more as like sanctification, living a holy life. But when they're presented in the New Testament, they're typically in the context of the world around us, how we respond to the pagans, how we love our neighbors. And so um, I want to read a couple of, again, lengthy passages. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, now you are God. Once you, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are not who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the Thanks. And there's so many more passages like this. I mean, I have... Romans 12, written down, Colossians 3, Colossians 4, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5. If you read these passages, we typically apply them to sanctification, and appropriately so. But there's a lens to read, read them through that would say they're all about mission. It's all about how we're interacting with those around us. Um, and so what are some ways that, as you guys read that, heard that read, what are some ways that these passages reflect faithful presence or gospel mission, you know, yeah, I guess that's my question. What are some ways that the passages reflect that? Verse 16, that this people who are free, not using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, mm-hmm. are living as servants of God. It's just, it's so every day. Every day you live as somebody who's free. Or not. But it's, it's not, hey, have a gospel 
conversation with the person at work necessarily. Maybe that's part of it. But it's bigger than that. It's more mundane than that. It's every day. One or two other observations? Kind of struck that the end of the first Peter one was honor the emperor. And that, how that's like, um, sort of like being in submission to like the laws of the land of the women. I mean, the first Peter's section kind of mentioned like, assuming that they are actually punishing people, um, praising good, being like active and sort of, I guess, maybe moving to like political or government part of the culture. And who was the emperor when at least when Peter was killed? Yeah. I think I heard it. Yeah. Nero. Nero was the emperor. Not a good guy. And, and I don't know who it was exactly at the time of writing here. I don't think that. But, but, um, there's theories that he was the one that burned down Rome. There was a big fire during his reign. And he blamed <laughs> it on the Christians, but he may have started it. Yeah. He had his mother killed, he had his bunch of other family members killed, and he started the first real persecution of Christians. Not a good guy, but we're called to honor him. Right? So, who was the last president you really didn't like? Okay. We're called to honor that president. So, faithful presence, it's ordinary, your gospel mission, biblical gospel mission, it's ordinary. It's countercultural, but it goes deeper than you think, despite its ordinariness. Because uh, the mission described in these verses is of the everyday variety. And it's striking to me that there are so many more commands like this in the Bible, honor the emperor, than there are about sharing the gospel or making disciples. That's not to minimize the importance of sharing the gospel and make disciples. It's just to maybe we shift our lens a little bit to how we approach our lives. Our whole life is called to be a lived-out gospel that involves certainly speaking the gospel and making disciples. Most of you are not going to become full-time missionaries, pastors, or ministers who spend most or the majority of your time having gospel conversations with students or children or adults or giving sermons or whatever. Most of you are going to work 8 to 5. Sometimes it'll be 7 to 9 and weekends too. And you'll live in neighborhoods around the Twin Cities or around the country, right? The call of Christianity for the vast majority of us isn't the call of the Apostle Paul, but it's the call of 1 Corinthians 7.17 and following, which talks about how only let each of you live as you were called. If you were a slave, don't make your whole life about becoming free. If you're unmarried, it's okay. You don't have to be married. If you're married, that's, that's good too. Live as you were called. It's ordinary. It's in the everyday of life that we live out this gospel. But it's also countercultural. <clears throat> Our society um, tells you on every side that it's up to you to be great. It's up to you to be whoever you want to be. Figure it out. And we all say, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Right? But that's what we're told to be. I just saw a book by the motivational speaker Tony Robbins from several years back. Just saw it. somebody sent a picture of it. It was called Awaken the Beast Within. So it's about how take over your life and, and be successful, right? That's the message that our, our culture will tell us. And in the church, I think this thinking gets very deeply ingrained to us as well. So I would think in this context, many of us aspire to be great disciples, great Bible study leaders, great speakers, 
great small group leaders, great D group leaders, great evangelists. And I struggle with that too. That's the message of the culture. Become great, and it comes into the church. But this call of Christ is the call of the cross. It demands that we most often sacrifice our desires for greatness and instead be joyfully ordinary by being present and involved in our communities and at the same time being faithful and aggressive in Christ. So it's countercultural. It's also deeper than you think. I think sometimes the word ordinary scares us um, because we start to feel like, what if my life isn't exciting? What if it's kind of boring? What if it doesn't matter? What if I don't get to accomplish the things that I've wanted to accomplish or that my parents want me to accomplish? But... (laughs) In its ordinariness, this call affirms the goodness of creation. It affirms that God made the world and called it good. It affirms the hope of consummation. It affirms that all this mundane living, everything matters, and one day Christ is going to come back, you guys. Christ is going to come back and consummate everything. Um, It also affirms the ongoing reality of our purpose. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, tend the garden. I've pulled out a lot of weeds over the last couple months because they grow. And that's really mundane. That's okay. You can do it to the glory of God. Um, Faithful presence prepares us for suffering because it reminds us that we're in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. We actually would expect to suffer. And if we don't suffer, that's the exception. Whether the exception in history or the exception in our lives. But we would expect to suffer. That's what faithful presence sort of means sometimes. We've got to be faithful when we suffer. And we, we're not shocked when things don't go exactly the way we hoped. Um, it affirms the unique triumph of the gospel in everyday life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply a message about how you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection has been showed to be the Lord over everything by defeating sin, death, and evil powers. And it's also the message that he is now reconciling all things to himself. Colossians 1. And so it's in this light that later in Colossians, Paul will tell us, whatever you do, and then he doesn't just say whether you share the gospel or whether you make disciples, he says whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of the Lord Jesus. I've wrestled with that for a long time now, and I still don't know exactly how to do that. But there's a call to do that. And I think a broader understanding of gospel mission that incorporates making disciples and makes that probably the figurehead, the, the main thing, but incorporates every other aspect of life, I think, is what we're called to. The faithful presence is ordinary, countercultural, and deeply in the same. And then my last, the third point is get our move on. So we've got our bearings, we've got our marching orders, let's get our move on. Application. I have a couple different contexts in which I want to apply this. So one is in the context of the institutional church. Or in theology, what we would refer to as ecclesiology. Ecclesia means congregation or assembly. It's the New Testament word for church. So we're called to be missional in the context of the institutional church, and not we're not called to hyper-individualize the mission. Um, probably the most striking way that this is true in the Bible is that the commands for mission rarely, if ever, start with you as an individual. They don't say, you, go be faithful to the poor. You, as an individual, share the gospel with all your co-workers. You as an individual, you know, honor the emperor by yourself. It's, we all do this together as a, as a group, as a community. 
so there's there's a, a freedom in that. We can do mission best when we do it as a community using our various gifts. And so just to, to work that out practically, um, join a church if you haven't yet. You don't have to wait until you're out of college to join a church. Join a church. And if you're called to move churches or switch churches, that's fine. Join that, that new church that you that you join. But I encourage you to join a church and then allow yourself to be plugged in. What I what I often experience in my own life and what I see happening is that we don't really allow ourselves to be plugged in. Because we don't have a lot of time. And we love our time. We love doing what we like to do. And so we don't allow our, the needs of the community to make demands on our time. But I would just encourage you to allow yourself to be plugged into whatever church you join. Um, find others. Find a smaller group who can help you in the ordinary, everyday task of mission. It's a very ordinary thing. It even... Our sanctification even kind of gets boiled into it, doesn't it? So find others who can help you. Find ways to bring non-Christians around your church, around your community. That's something I struggle with. I grew up in the church. Um, I've never really had close non-Christian friends. Like like um, black and white non-Christian friends. I've had friends who aren't Christians who go to church and grow up in the church and everything. But I struggle with that. And just last night in our small group, there's people in, in, my, in our small group other than my small group, who are better at that, whose instincts are, are are awesome in that respect. How can we get more non-Christians around our small group? I love that. And I, I need the body to help me there because I'm weak. Um, and so if you end up staying at Bethlehem, there's all sorts of ways to get plugged into missional contexts. There's small groups. There's something that we're kind of starting new and we're seeing how it goes called beta groups for people who are either not able to get in a small group or are um, not sure if they want to get that plugged in the community or they kind of want to try out Christianity a little bit. And it's new and it'll evolve over time. But beta groups. There's SALT, which is the Somali Adult Literacy Training. I think what that stands for. Um, where we people help Somalis learn English. There's neighborhood outreach. I'm aware of uh, some of our friends live in the Phillips neighborhood and they have started something that they call Phillips Kids Club. It's helping um, kids who particularly don't have a father in the home, as it turns out, you know, it's just the kids who are around, um, get their homework done, learn about Jesus, have friends, have older adults in their life, especially males, um, for, the, for the boys. That's something you get plugged into. I know that they're looking for more people to help them with that. There's just too many kids. Um, we have an increasing desire to engage faith and work, and figure out how do we integrate faith with specifically the work that we do. Um, Sunday school, you can teach Sunday school. And there's all sorts of things like that. Um, one thing I'll plug is, is small group ministry at Bethlehem. We see um, small groups as a primary context in which gospel mission should happen. And we're trying to figure out ways to get that to happen in our, in our small groups. Okay, so that's ecclesiology, the church. Second, eschatology. Eschatology is about Redemptive history and specifically the end times. Um, so we're called to be missional in the context of redemptive history. And this gets back to Babylon versus Jerusalem. Are we in Babylon or are we in Jerusalem? It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to assume that we're supposed to be comfortable or everything's just supposed to be easy. But we're actually we're in a, kind of a pagan post-Christian culture. So how do we react there in, in light of redemptive history? Well, I would just... I would just encourage you to always remember Jesus wins in the end. He doesn't lose. He wins. So don't let your hearts be troubled. So 
regardless of what changes, regardless of um, the pressures that you might face in your day-to-day walk, Jesus wins in the end. So put your hope in that. Um, Jesus is coming again to judge the world. Um, And so kind of back to what I said at the very beginning, just would encourage you guys, be faithful to Christ in whatever you're doing. Don't be unfaithful. Don't just assume that because of the gospel, because of the grace, you can continue in sin or you can get lazy in your Christian life, especially as you transition out of college because it's, it's a new challenge for you. Be faithful to Christ. He's coming again. And he's coming again to judge. Sometimes we forget that. Um, and then as, with respect to our non-Christian friends and neighbors, now um, the writer of the Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. So find ways to be around non-Christians. And be proactive about it. When you get busy, it's hard. If you're not, if it's not a part of the regular rhythm of your life, it can be hard to invest time with your non-Christian friends. So I would just encourage you to do that. Remember, now is the day of salvation because one day Jesus is going to come again and he will come with judgment. But he's not only coming with judgment, he's coming to accomplish consummation. And so that should do a couple things. I think one, set your expectations for what gospel mission is going to look like. We're not at consummation yet. We're still, the world is still cursed. It's still fallen. You're going to be tired. You're not going to be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. You're going to be frustrated. Things work against you sometimes and they don't turn out the way that you want it to. You go to lunch with a coworker hoping to talk about Christ and instead you talk about the bachelorette. And that's what happens sometimes. Don't, don't set your expectations that everything's going to turn out the way that you want. Remember that consummation hasn't happened yet. It's coming in the future. And then the second thing that that reality you should do is I would just would encourage you to anticipate the joy. Set, First Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, set your hope fully. That's hard to do. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm still figuring out how to obey that, how to do that. But I would just encourage you guys to also do that. Anticipate the joy. Um, Tim, some of you might be familiar with Tim Keller. He, he has a sermon about the, the Last Supper in the upper room, and he, he says it really poetically. He says, Jesus sipped, when he, when he inaugurated the Lord's Supper, he says he sipped the coming sorrow so that we could sip the coming joy. And I would encourage you, sip the coming joy often, because whatever sorrows happen this side of consummation, they only last for a, a moment. And what's on the other side is totally worth it. So ecclesiology, eschatology, and then the last thing would be Salvation, theological word, soteriology. We've got to be missional in the context of our existence in Christ as opposed to sort of forgetting that we're in Christ and just thinking, oh, I'm supposed to be a good Christian. Being missional won't deliver you from your deepest sins. It won't deliver you from your greatest fears. Sometimes, um, you know, when I was involved in campus outreach, I think sometimes I would try to do mission because I thought it would make me better or it would deliver me from some of these things. It doesn't. It doesn't. And that doesn't um, that doesn't have to be bad news. It's actually the good news. Jesus delivers you from your deepest sins. Jesus delivers you from your darkest fears. So don't turn to mission and figuring out how to live your life as a way to make your you know, to deliver yourself. Jesus is the only one who can do that. Um, mission follows the pattern of His death and resurrection. So what your life is going to look like is humility and service. It's the cross before the crown. Right? Consummation isn't hasn't happened yet. 
We're in Christ, our lives are in Christ, and we're called to live the way that he lived. We're in him. Life comes through death and resurrection. Over and over and over again, C.S. Lewis says that principle runs through life from top to bottom. Lose your life and you'll find it. Keep your life and you won't have anything left. So that's what we're called to, sacrificial love. And I would just maybe, the only way I would caveat that is, mm-hmm. remember, set your expectations for now. You'll be tired when you get home from work. You'll be, sometimes you just need quiet time. That's okay. God knows that we're dust. He knows that we need that. That's not bad. But I would just say, remember that mission follows the pattern of his death and resurrection. And then the last thing before kind of wrapping up is, um, I would just encourage you guys to love people first. I think sometimes when we get excited about mission, we love them not because we love them, but because we're using them as a way to check our obedience off the list, if that makes sense. I care about this person because I'm supposed to show the gospel with them. I'm supposed to make disciples. So that's why I care about them. And that's not actually not like God. God set our, his love on us, not because of anything other than that he set his love on us. And we're called to follow that. So let yourself love people. Let yourself care about them. Bear their burdens. And don't turn them into a means for your ends. And I think that will actually fuel, that'll make gospel conversations way easier than if you're doing, if you're using them to check your obedience list. Um, okay, so kind of wrapping up. As a, as a discussion topic when you break into your groups, I, want, I, I thought of four categories of life. And you might, if you think of another one, go for it. You don't have to abide by these. Um, but the categories are family, work, friends, and neighborhood. Family, work, friends, neighborhood. And just pick one of them and think about what would gospel mission look like in that context for you. And you can sort of apply it however you want to. Um, what, would, what would faithful presence look like in your family? What would it look like at work? What would it look like with your friends? What would it look like in the neighborhood? And there's something that stuck out to you tonight. I know that um, Jared's been encouraging you, the speakers have been encouraging you to think about one thought that sort of has stuck out to you tonight. Maybe that's one way to tie in your one thought would be, how can I apply it? What, what context might God be calling me to do that in? Um, so I'm running very long, as usual. The last thing um, to maybe wrap up with, do you guys ever, do you guys know the, the communion song, Behold the Lamb, that we sing a lot of times at communion at Bethlehem? Um, if you don't know the song, it, it actually might be my favorite song. I realized that recently. I don't do well with favorites. I can never decide what favorites are, but it's one of my favorites. And um, verse 4 says this. It says, And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember are called to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. If you have questions or want to kind of work some of this out more, fire away. Um, you said you had to wrestle through if God cared about you being a mentor. Mm-hmm. Could you give like a quick um, like overview of kind of how you wrestled through it? Yeah, so for the six first six months on, on the job after I got hired by Wells Fargo, I was not a very good worker. I was distracted by lots of things, including the thought, does this really matter? Should I go on staff at campus outreach? 
that was that was the thought that I was wrestling through. And for many people, the answer to that is yes, um, and that's good. But it wasn't for me. That wasn't God's calling in my life. And so, like, I knew in my head that God wants people to work. I mean, He wouldn't have made the world so that we had to work if He didn't like work. But in my heart, I I was like, is my life really significant? Is this does this really matter? I'm working in spreadsheets and we're documents and putting reports together. Does God really care about this? People are dying and going to hell. Should I be spending my time doing this? And those were real questions for me. Those were things I had to work through. Um, probably the person who helped me more than anybody was Tim Keller. He's got a lot of good material on faith and work. So if you're struggling through that or wrestling through that or think you might in the future, look up some of his free sermons on work for, at Redeemer.com. Could you tell us what uh, situation where you have to live out gospel mission at your workplace? Okay, I'll, yeah, there's probably like three or four I could have. So, you can, when I'm not well prepared, I don't have any examples because I'm all sort of theory. So, I appreciate you asking for the examples. Um, in the job that I had before this, uh, I, something really clicked and I started to um, view my work as like good in and of itself. Like I didn't just know that with my head, but I, it something clicked and I, I don't know how to explain that. And so when I would go into work every day, I would try to remember that and try to live that out. And so that actually shaped the way I did my work. And it's probably more detailed than I can go into now. But I started to see my work not as sort of something I was doing for my career, for my development, or just because I had to do it so I could go home. But God was actually calling me through the work that I was doing to make other people's lives easier who needed my work. They needed my work in order for their job to, to go well, in order for us to be successful. And that was helpful for me because that's something I wrestled with. How do you do your work for God? How do you do it for others? And I think at, at a certain point, you have to, to deal with that. And I, it probably shows up in whatever your sin struggle is at work. Mine probably tends to be laziness. That's that. That's what reveals my self-orientation at work, and so how do I how do I combat that in a gospel mission way? Lay my life down for other people. Be engaged. If, I, if I'm not going to be as engaged as I possibly could be for myself, be engaged for, for the sake of others. That's maybe one one way. Um, another is uh, in my old job, found out a, a guy um, just being honest about being a Christian. I think is super helpful. Just letting it be known. I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I was able to do that with a coworker. Found out he um, was a Christian as well, or planned to be a Christian. And through talking, we ended up starting to meet once a week, uh, go, going through Ephesians at first, um, just talking through it. And um, we both got new jobs that are both downtown now, so we still meet downtown. And we've gone through First John, and now we're going through both the meaning of marriage. We're both married. So. Um, that's been really fruitful. Really, he was uh, just he—he he was like the, just the practical situations you come up with. He's claiming to be a Christian. He and his girlfriend, well, he and his fiance buy a house together. They move in together. And I'm like, crap. We're going through Ephesians. I'm gonna have to ask this my coworker if he's committing fornication. <laughs> this will be interesting. Um, but I did. 
And that was kind of scary a little bit, but it happened. And you know what? He, he said, you know, pastors have always said that. And I just never really understood why. And he saw the Bible. He saw what the Bible had to say. And they stopped sleeping. They still lived in the same house. They still slept in the same bed. But they, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, he's told me something. They stopped committing sexual sin. That was cool, you know. And it all probably started because I was willing to just let myself be known that I was a Christian and just wanted to get to know people. It's just really simple stuff like that. Similar, similar situation in my current job. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. Let it be known that you're a Christian, not in some brazen, aggressive way where you're going to share all your opinions, but just, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. How was your weekend? Oh, it was great. I went to church, I was friend about the word. I, I always feel the pressure to not say that I went to church. You know, if I did something that was specifically Christian, to avoid saying what it was. I, and I don't know why. It's just the social pressure. So. Father God, we... We praise you and thank you. You are the you are the true one on mission, and you came and rescued us. You came and saved us. You came and redeemed us, and we proclaim your excellencies. We we love you. We praise you. We worship you. I pray for these um, men and women as they transition to a new stage of their lives. I pray that they would be faithful. I pray that you would keep them. I pray that you would preserve them. That they be that they would be true to Christ, and we know that that's only your power. So we ask you to do it. Help them to be plugged in to the local church, help them to be plugged into a local community and um, that they would not fall away, but that they would grow um, all the more strong in Christ. And pray that you bless their lives, that their lives would be very fruitful and that others would come to know you through them. Others would come to grow into maturity through them. And that you bless the work of their hands. You bless the tasks that you're giving them to do. Um, so, thank you that you are the one who is able to do more than we can ask. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.